Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, rape, dismemberment, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's April 1979. A helicopter lifts into the air above a Soton, Washington, and Gary White presses his nose against the window. He watches the grid of sidewalks and neighborhoods grow smaller as he and the pilot rise high above the earth. Gary's eyes narrow in on the county fairgrounds. He says, there. The pilot steers that direction. They fly over trailers and parade floats. Gary keeps his eyes peeled. It's like he's afraid to even blink in case he misses something. But no matter how hard he searches, there's no sign of his daughter. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're going to the Lewis Clark Valley, a collection of small remote towns on the Idaho-Washington border, actually not very far from where I grew up. Between 1979 and 1982, five young people went missing from the area. Their disappearance changed the valley forever and cast a shadow of suspicion on one man. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Lewis-Clark Valley sits along the border of Washington and Idaho. It's far from any major cities and made up of a number of small, tight-knit towns. One is Asotin, Washington. In 1979, Asotin has a population of just 1,000 people. It's known for its natural beauty. There's rolling hills, tall trees, and a large body of water called the Snake River. Think Coint. Charming, the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. And nothing bad ever happens. In such a small community, annual events are a big deal. Even though April 2nd, 1979 is an unseasonably hot day, people have come out for the Asotin County Fair. It's a whole production. There's games, rides, and of course, a parade. Betty Wilkes has dragged her two daughters out of the house for the festivities. Her youngest, six-year-old Carlin, seems to be having a pretty good time. But 12-year-old Christina White has already had enough of it. The heat's getting to her, and she's bored. Christina's a bit of a tomboy. She's not interested in the glittery, bright colors of the parade. 
She'd much rather be with her friends, fishing on the Snake River, or playing in the nearby woods. Around noon, when the sun is at its peak, Christina pokes her mom and asks if she can go to her friend's house. She's got her bike with her, she can ride there herself, and she'll come back home for dinner. Betty nods. The heat's starting to bother her, too. As Christina jumps on her bike and rides away, Betty and Carlin start home on foot. They pass Christina's friend's house on the way and see her outside. She's arrived safely. They wave and carry on. Later that afternoon, Betty's phone rings. It's Christina calling from her friend's house. She's having symptoms of a heat stroke. This has happened before, so Betty's not that worried. She tells her daughter to get a cold towel and drape it over her head, then lie down for a bit. As soon as she's feeling better, she can bike home. Betty expects to see her daughter soon, but hours pass with no sign of her and no call back. When she doesn't show up for dinner, Betty gets worried. She calls Christina's friend's house, but her daughter isn't there anymore. Nobody knows where she is. Unsure where else to turn, Betty goes to the police for help. As you probably know, in a lot of missing person cases, authorities wait anywhere from 24 to 48 hours to begin an official investigation. But in this case, Chief Tom Pryor immediately springs into action, likely because Christina is so young and the Asotan community is so tight-knit. That said, Betty and the authorities think they'll find Christina quickly. Well, she's probably riding her bike around, totally unaware of the commotion she's causing. Or maybe she's still having heatstroke symptoms and decided to lie down somewhere. Betty and the police scour every nook and cranny of the small town, but they don't find Christina or her bike anywhere. As far as they can tell, she left her friend's house to bike home, then vanished. News spreads fast in Asotin. That night and the next morning, the community comes together in support of Betty and her family. They offer help in whatever way they can, searching the town, putting up posters, or simply lending a sympathetic ear. Meanwhile, Christina's father, Gary White, races to Asotin to join the search. By the time he arrives in town, he's got his own theory. He thinks someone from the county fair kidnapped Christina. He tries to get the police to search the trailers and campers, but there's not enough evidence to obtain warrants. Gary's frustrated, but he has another idea. He asks a local man, Jim Pope, for a favor. Jim owns a helicopter, and Gary thinks they might have an easier time spotting clues from above. They take the chopper and fly all over the county. Gary keeps his eyes peeled, desperate to find his daughter. They don't see anything, but Gary's not giving up. When the carnival leaves town, he follows it 150 miles to the Tri-Cities area. He hosts his own informal investigation, going through the fairgrounds and questioning everyone he can. Still, nobody knows anything about his daughter. Gary's devastated. He's tried everything he can think of, and they're no closer to finding answers. Christina's parents are heartbroken. 
and so is the whole community. Asotin used to be a place where kids played in the streets, somewhere children could run around without supervision. Now, everyone's on edge. Everyone wants answers. But as the weeks turn into months, then years, it seems like they might never know what happened to Christina. Her case goes cold, and slowly the townspeople convince themselves her disappearance was a one-off event. That is, until a second girl goes missing. It happens in Lewiston, Idaho on June 26, 1981. Lewiston is a bigger city than Asotin, with a population of around 28,000, but both towns are in the Lewis-Clark Valley, and what happens in one affects the other. James Archibald is driving through Lewiston when he sees an incident on the side of the road. There's a young blonde woman sprawled out on the ground, apparently unconscious. Her bike strewn to the side, with the back wheel still spinning. Just behind it is a van that one would assume hit her. And if that's true, the accident must have just happened. James watches as a man gets out of the van and heads toward the young woman. The driver can't be more than six feet tall, maybe 150 pounds. He smiles at James, as if to say, all's good here. James considers stopping to help, but he keeps driving. He thinks it's better to call the authorities as soon as he can, so when he arrives home, he dials 911 and tells the operator what he saw. Paramedics rush to the scene. When they get there, there's no woman, no man, no van, no bike, nothing. Authorities think James made the story up. They chew him out for his so-called false report. But James holds firm. He knows what he saw. Now, he only wishes he'd stopped and done more. He has no idea what happened to the young woman or who she even was. The answers to those questions come a week later, on the 4th of July. A fisherman is out on the Snake River. It's a peaceful, pleasant day. Then he sees a garbage bag wash up on shore. It looks stuffed to the brim. He puts down his rod, opens it up, and finds newspapers tightly wrapped around an object. He unravels them and can't believe what he's just found. The fisherman pulls back the newspapers to discover a young woman's body. He calls the police and they race to the river to investigate. Officers examine the remains, but they quickly realize it's not a whole body in the bag. It's just one part of it. The victim has been dismembered. They scour the river and find five other bags, all with additional body parts. They bring them back to the lab for testing and eventually ID the victim. Her name is Kristen David. She was a 22-year-old journalism major at the nearby University of Idaho. Her parents describe her as a loving, responsible young woman 
who was especially close to her younger siblings. One of David's favorite hobbies was bicycling. She'd go on rides that lasted hours. On the day she went missing, she was biking 40 miles from her school in Moscow, Idaho, to her hometown of Lewiston. When David didn't show up for work, her family immediately knew something was wrong, and they reported her missing. However, Lewiston police waited 48 hours to begin an official search. Their efforts become especially tragic in hindsight. It's possible she was the young, injured, blonde woman James Archibald saw while he was driving through town, the one they accused him of filing a false report about. Over a week had already passed since David was last seen, and the trail has gone cold. The authorities' only pieces of physical evidence are the trash bags and newspapers her body was wrapped in. Officials might be able to salvage some DNA from them, but with the technology available in 1981, they'd need to get a sample, then compare it against a suspect's DNA, meaning without a suspect, the evidence is useless. But law enforcement still has to try. Kristen David's case becomes a top priority for multiple jurisdictions. Two states and three separate counties are all trying to find her killer. Eventually, even the FBI gets involved. Yet all this manpower does nothing to uncover any leads. They've got no clues and no potential suspects. The case hits a dead end. It's difficult for the community to swallow. The Lewis Clark Valley was once a safe haven. Now it's like the setting for a real-life horror movie. Locals can't help but connect Kristen David's story to Christina White's, the 12-year-old who disappeared on her way home from the county fair two years before. What if Christina suffered the same terrible fate? It feels like anybody's daughter could be next. It's a chilling thought, and it soon becomes a reality. Less than a year later, three more people vanished from the valley. On the evening of September 12, 1982, 21-year-old Christina Nelson and her stepsister, 18-year-old Brandy Miller, are hanging out at home in Lewiston. Both young women are kind and bubbly, Nelson has dreams of becoming a veterinarian. Brandy's about to graduate high school. That evening, they decide to run some errands. They don't want to worry their parents, so they leave a note saying they're going to the shop. They walk out the front door, and they're never seen again. This is the third disappearance in an area where things like this never happen. Naturally, people think it might be related to the previous two, but something's different this time. Christina White and Kristen David both went missing while biking alone. Now, there are two young women who vanished together. And there's more. The same night Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller go missing, a local man also disappears from Lewiston. 35-year-old Stephen Pearsall. Police immediately notice that Stephen doesn't match the established victim profile. Up to this point, they've all been girls or young women. Stephen's a man in his mid-30s. For law enforcement, this is a red flag. Then another one pops up. 
They learn Stephen knew Nelson and Brandy. He's a janitor at the Lewiston Civic Theater, where Nelson worked part-time and Brandy often stopped by. Which makes detectives think, maybe Stephen is the killer they've been looking for. He quickly becomes the prime suspect, not just in Nelson and Brandy's case, but all three crimes. Officers talk to Stephen's girlfriend. She says on the night of the disappearance, they went to a party together. Afterward, she drops Stephen off at the Civic Theater to do laundry and practice his clarinet. Apparently, the clarinet was Stephen's most prized possession. According to his friends and family, there's no way he would have left town without it. And yet, police find his clarinet in Lewiston. They also discover his car is still in town, along with a number of uncashed paychecks. Detectives start to falter. Maybe they have the wrong idea. As the days go on, a more likely scenario emerges. Stephen isn't responsible. He might actually be a victim himself. With Stephen reclassified as a missing person, detectives start over from scratch. Eventually, they determine a new person of interest, someone who has a connection to all five victims. For privacy, we're going to call him Frank Thompson. He's a local guy with a wife and kids. By most accounts, he seems pretty normal. But police get suspicious when they learn Frank worked as a janitor and performed plays at, you guessed it, the Lewiston Civic Theater. That automatically connects him to Christina Nelson, Brandy, and Stephen. Before long, police learn Kristen David, the 22-year-old who disappeared on her bike ride, spent a few summers working at that same theater. She almost certainly crossed paths with Frank in that time. But the most eerie connection is with Christina White, the 12-year-old who went missing after going to her friend's house. Turns out, Frank owned the home where Christina's friend lived. It's not totally clear what the situation was. Some sources say he lived there, while others say he might have had a relationship with Christina's friend's mom or rented the house out to her. Either way, he had access to the property, and he must have known Christina. According to FBI agent Bradley Garrett, who later joins the case, it's actually kind of unusual for a serial killer to target victims they know personally, but it's not impossible. For Agent Garrett, that's what makes this case so fascinating. If the authorities' suspicions are correct, Frank is a unique killer. Authorities contact his wife to see if she knows anything helpful. She tells police that on the night the Civic Theater trio went missing, Frank never came home. He was gone all night. It was the first time anything like that ever happened, so it was upsetting. And apparently, Frank gave his wife an interesting excuse. He said he spent the whole night asleep at the Lewiston Civic Theater. Based on this information, police formulate a theory about that night. 
They think it's possible Frank was at a bar in Lewiston when he saw Christina Nelson and Brandy walk by. He might have offered them a lift back home, and because they knew him, they accepted. At that point, detectives think he brought them to the theater where he had enough privacy to kill them. Frank didn't anticipate that anyone else would show up at the theater, especially so late at night. When Stephen's girlfriend dropped him off, Frank might have killed him so there wouldn't be any witnesses. Well, that's the idea, at least. So police are pretty confident when they bring Frank in for an interrogation. But for every question investigators throw at him, he's got a quick answer. He admits he went to the theater that night but gives detectives a whole story about accidentally injuring himself and then taking a nap. He claims he was asleep and never heard Nelson, Brandy, or Stephen enter the building. Later, he says he did move his car around back to load something up, but he swears it was just his tools. Everything feels too convenient. It's like he's actively trying to cover his tracks and account for any possible witnesses to his actions. The cops are pretty sure he's lying, but they can't prove it. So, he's free to go. The case remains unsolved with no new leads for the next 18 months. The culture of the Lewis Clark Valley has shifted permanently. Five people are gone. One of them has been found murdered. In all likelihood, there's a serial killer on the loose. And it feels like there's nothing anyone can do about it. Tension builds until March 1984, when a 15-year-old boy named Marvin Mead is out collecting cans. He's on a remote property about 40 miles away from Lewiston. He walks through the tree line on his way back to his truck, when a branch knocks his hat off. It blows down the hill and stops near a strange gray object. Marvin's just a kid. He figures it's an animal bone and he thinks it'll be cool to display at home. He reaches down to pick it up, only to realize it's a human skull. Marvin alerts the police. When crime scene technicians get there, they make another grisly discovery. It's not just one skull on the property, it's two badly decomposed bodies. Detectives send the remains back to the lab for testing. Through the clothing and jewelry found with the bodies, they're able to ID them. Sure enough, it's Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, two of the Civic Theater trio. A year and a half after they went missing, the police finally have some answers. They're just not the ones they wanted. Nelson and Brandy's case is now a murder investigation, and detectives still think they have their guy. They bring Frank Thompson in for another round of questioning, this time as an official suspect. He continues to claim he didn't see or hear Nelson, Brandy, or Stephen come into the theater that night. But given the layout of the building and where Frank says he was sleeping, that seems nearly impossible. Investigators keep pressing him. Frank's nervous and fidgety. Every time he repeats a story, 
some of the details change. Detectives know he's hiding something, but they don't have any physical evidence to tie him to Nelson and Brandy's murders. Without that, they need a confession, and he's not giving them one. So, once again, Frank's free to go. For Frank, this is obviously a good thing. He's never made any public statements about the investigation, but based on his tone during police interrogations, he seems annoyed at being dragged into the case at all. He insists he's innocent, but he also refuses to take a polygraph exam, which strikes some investigators as suspicious. If he has nothing to hide, why not take the test? Well, maybe because he does have some secrets. As police soon find out, there are some incidents in Frank's past he'd probably rather keep hidden. For example, his acquaintances recall that a woman he once dated died by suicide. Frank was the one who discovered her body. At the time, her loved ones wrote it off as an unexplainable tragedy. Now, they think it's awfully suspicious for so much violence and death to surround one man. They wonder if Frank could have had something to do with it. There's also the fact that Frank has a criminal record in California. He lived there in 1972 when a 17-year-old girl died under suspicious circumstances. A day or two later, Frank was arrested for breaking into the funeral home where her body was being kept. He was carrying a camera and a hunting knife. We can only imagine what he planned to do with them. To make matters worse, his behavior doesn't seem to improve even after the police interrogate him. At some point in the mid-1980s, Frank puts his house up for sale. A local woman comes by to check it out. It's all going fine, except he keeps insisting she come see the basement. Eventually, she agrees and they head down. On their way, she turns around to say something to him and he quickly drops his arm. He was holding something raised above his head. He tries to play it off, but she tells him to show her his hands. Reluctantly, he reveals a bedpost finial. It's not an obvious weapon, but the woman is still terrified. She later says she can't help but think if she hadn't turned around at just the right moment, Frank might have murdered her too. For all these reasons, the community and the police never stop considering Frank a suspect. They can't shake their suspicion, but they also can't find any proof. Then, in 1990, a man named John Jeffers takes over as the Asotan County Sheriff. He's bright-eyed and determined to solve the area's most haunting cold cases. To do that, he wants to try something different. See, up until this point, all of the investigations have been handled by different agencies. Christina White's case is under the jurisdiction of the Asotan County Sheriff's Department. Kristen Davids has been split between various local, state, and federal agencies. The Civic Theater Trio is in the hands of the Lewiston PD. 
As John Jeffers is all too aware, this isn't an efficient way to run things. And as far as he can tell, law enforcement organizations are all looking at the same person of interest, Frank Thompson. The Asotan County Sheriff's Department and Lewiston PD agree to pool their resources in the hopes of finding a breakthrough. And that's when they get a tip that might blow the whole case open. In 1990, the Asotan and Lewiston Police Departments make a huge discovery. Frank Thompson, their main person of interest, just poured a layer of concrete into the basement of one of his properties. It's a chilling development, something that makes authorities think he's trying to hide something beneath that concrete. They don't miss a beat. They obtain a search warrant and arrive at Frank's property with radars and cadaver dogs in tow. Despite wanting to tear up every last inch of the basement, Asotan County Sheriff John Jeffers is methodical. He and his team test different areas, using specialized equipment looking for aberrations or empty spaces beneath the concrete, signs they should start digging. They narrow in on one spot they believe is big enough to hide a body. Jeffers orders his men to start excavating. The sheriff watches and waits. He's positive this is the moment they've all been waiting for. Finally, he can put this case to bed and he can send the man responsible to prison for life. When the digging's done, no one says anything. Jeffers steps forward and peers into the ground, but there's nothing there. This marks the end of an era. Authorities don't have probable cause to question Frank Thompson again or to search any more of his properties. Plus, Frank's got a lawyer, and he says if police don't back off, he'll sue them for harassment. Because of this, authorities decide to stop investigating him. It's a huge disappointment. Although Christina White and Stephen Pearsall's bodies haven't been found, most people assume they're dead. Because of this, all three cases become known as the Lewis Clark Valley murders. Over the coming decades, most of the officers who worked the original investigations retire. Frank Thompson continues to live and work in the area until 1999 when he moves to the East Coast. With him gone, the pain of the crimes becomes less sharp, but nobody in the valley forgets them. Then, in the 2000s, a new detective joins the Asotan County Sheriff's Office. Her name is Jackie Nichols, and she breathes new life into the cold cases. Since she's based in Asotan, she's specifically focused on Christina White. Although nearly 30 years have passed since her disappearance, Jackie considers it her job to figure out what happened. She wants to finally give Christina's family answers. She pours over all the evidence. She re-interviews witnesses. She retraces the steps of both the victims and her prime person of interest. Like her predecessors, she believes Frank Thompson is responsible for at least four of the disappearances and deaths. In her mind, there's only one that could potentially be the work of another second killer. 
That's Kristen David's case, the 22-year-old who went missing on her bike ride and who James Archibald saw on the road. Jackie looks back over James's description of the man at the scene, somewhat thin and a little shorter than average. To Jackie, that couldn't be Frank Thompson. He's too tall and broad. Plus, the way David's body was dismembered doesn't match the M.O. in the other cases. So, Jackie looks into a lead for a potential suspect, a convicted murderer named Harry Hantman. In 1968, when Hantman was college-aged, he was arrested for the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity and was sentenced to stay in a psychiatric hospital. Five years later, he escaped and went on the run. He spent the next two decades hiding out in a cabin on the Idaho-Oregon border. It's about 100 miles away from the Lewis-Clark Valley, but still close enough that he could have easily made a day trip there. Eventually, he was caught and returned to prison in 1993, but that was 12 years after Kristen David's death. It's possible he could have killed her. Jackie goes to Hantman's old cabin and searches the place. As she walks the grounds, she spots something half buried in the earth. It's the remains of black trash bags. They're disintegrated, like they've been sitting there for years. Jackie can't help but think, maybe they're the same garbage bags that were used to wrap up Kristen's dismembered body. If they're a match, it could be an important clue. It's a glimmer of hope. Remember, years earlier, police thought they might be able to get DNA from the garbage bags or newspapers. Genetic technology has advanced a lot since then. If samples of the items still exist, police might be able to salvage DNA from them and compare it to Hantman's genetic profile. But there's a problem. Jackie has no idea where the original garbage bags and newspapers even are. They're not in evidence storage. There's actually a pretty good chance they've been thrown out at some point in the last four decades. In the end, Jackie's discovery doesn't amount to much. But it's not a dead end, because Jackie isn't the only one searching for answers. Remember Christina Nelson, one of the Civic Theater trio? Her cousin, Gloria Boberts, has devoted her life to finding answers for all the victims' families. Like Jackie and the authorities, Gloria believes Frank Thompson is guilty. But she also thinks there are more than just five victims. With his history of violence, she's convinced Frank has to be responsible for other murders. If she can find proof of that, it might help prosecute him in the Valley. Gloria's mission takes her all the way to Chicago, where she looks into the 1963 murder of an eight-year-old girl. She was last seen alive at a local YMCA, the same place Frank Thompson worked as a youth camp counselor. At the time, Chicago police questioned nearly everyone in the neighborhood, including 15-year-old Frank, but he was never a real suspect. The cops thought they were looking for someone much older. 
Gloria sends everything she learns to Detective Jackie Nichols, and the more Jackie reads about it, the more she starts to think Gloria's onto something. Jackie calls up her Chicago counterparts and shares the details of her investigation. From there, the FBI steps in. They ask for all of Jackie's notes and files. They're taking over. As of this recording, the investigation is still in the hands of the FBI. They continue to gather clues in the hopes of prosecuting the killer. In the Lewis Clark Valley, life will never be the same. The remains of Kristen David, Brandy Miller, and Christina Nelson were all found and returned to their families. But to this day, Christina White and Stephen Pearsall have never been located. Christina's father, Gary White, held out hope that Christina was still alive until the day he died. In the 2011 documentary Confluence, he told filmmakers, you just sit there and hope that somewhere down the line that she will surface and will be a happy lady. She was born in 1967, and so, you know, she's a young woman now, if she is still alive. Who can blame him for hoping? Sometimes that's the only way to deal with such terrifying, senseless violence. To hope some of the victims will turn up safe. To hope answers will be found. To hope justice will be served. These crimes serve as a constant reminder that evil lingers in the safest places. There's no turning back from that loss of innocence. And there's no forgetting. As Lewiston reporter Sandra Lee puts it in the 2018 documentary Cold Valley, these cases, how can they go away? They still all have family here, and they all have friends, and we all know those cases. And if we didn't know those people before, we feel like we know them now, because they've become part of our lives. What happened is forever a part of this community. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the Lewis Clark Valley murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentaries Confluence and Cold Valley extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Alex Burns, edited by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy